Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler. I'm pleased to have as my guest for this episode, Associate Professor Peter Molk, who teaches business law at the University of Florida Levin College of Law, and who's making his second appearance on this podcast. Peter is the author of a provocative article recently published in the UC Davis Law Review entitled, Protecting LLC Owners While Preserving LLC Flexibility. Let me read part of the article's abstract, which defines the problem Peter addresses. LLC statutes allow owners to restrict or completely waive standard governance protections required of other business forms. Corporate law mandatory stalwarts, like fiduciary duties, can be entirely eliminated in an LLC. This flexible approach has the potential to generate maximally efficient governance relationships. Tailored negotiation among LLC investors can produce an optimal set of governance terms that corporate law's mandatory protections cannot. Yet, when owners lack sophistication or bargaining power, Contractual freedom allows for terms that lead to mispriced capital, reduced investment, and inefficiently allocated capital across LLCs. In his article, Professor Mulk proposes an accreditation solution that balances freedom of contract with the need for added protections for what I'll call unsophisticated investors and owners, modeled on the securities law's accredited investor concept. Peter's article resonated strongly with me because of my own experience and perceptions of what I call the two worlds of LLCs. In one world, you have highly capitalized firms, often structured as manager-managed LLCs with numerous non-managing investors, effectively relegated to the role of passive investors. In this first world of LLCs, the participants tend to be sophisticated business people and investors getting the benefit of sophisticated legal and financial advice. Allowing maximum freedom of contract makes optimal sense in this LLC world. Then you have the other LLC world. This other world consists of smaller, thinly capitalized, owner-operated firms organized most often as member-managed LLCs in which some or all of the participants have little or no access to financial or legal advisors and have no idea sometimes what their rights are as LLC members. Very often, these LLCs have no operating agreement and therefore are governed by statutory default rules that can leave minority members helpless. Or sometimes they purchase online, one-size-fits-all form agreements that are hardly an improvement over no agreement. Or they may have one-sided agreements put together by counsel, effectively or actually representing the interests of the majority member. I've split my interview with Peter into two parts. In this part one, Peter and I discuss what I've called the two worlds of LLCs as the backdrop for his proposed accreditation solution that you'll hear us discuss in part two, which I'll have available for listeners two or three weeks from now. So keep an eye out for it. Without further delay, here's part one of my interview of Professor Mulk. Peter, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be back. This is the second time, Peter, I've had you on the podcast. The last time we talked about default rules and operating agreements of LLCs. And this time I've invited you back based on a more recent article of yours that was published in the UC Davis Law Review, I think last year. It was called, it is called Protecting LLC Owners While Preserving LLC Flexibility. In the article, you developed the case for bifurcating LLC law depending on LLC owners' 
projected sophistication. That's a bit of a mouthful, and you're going you're gonna to explain it to us very shortly. But I just want to say before you launch, Peter, when I saw that article, it really hit me because I had been focused for a long time and even speaking about it in public about what I call the two worlds of LLCs. There's one world that I see reflected in the Delaware you know, LLC case law that I follow very closely, where more often than not, You're dealing with highly capitalized LLCs, oftentimes with passive investors, very highly sophisticated counsel preparing highly sophisticated operating agreements, and the courts applying a, you know, contrarian freedom of contract approach. And then there's the other world. It's more the world I live in here in, in my New York practice, where more often than not, I'm dealing with family-owned LLCs, where you don't find those types of sophisticated, negotiated, certainly operating agreements, or owner-operated LLCs that start perhaps from little or nothing, uh, very thinly capitalized. If they're successful, they'll grow over time. But again, they, they don't have the types of sophisticated investors necessarily that I see in the Delaware cases, nor the sophisticated lawyers drafting thorough, sophisticated operating agreements. And that's what I mean by the two worlds. Your article shares some of that, but it tackles it from a, it addresses it, I should say, from a very different angle. What is the issue or the problem that you're addressing in your article? It talks about bifurcating LLCs. Well, I love the way you describe it. And I wish I had talked to you before I came up with my own title. Uh, I like the two worlds of LLCs. I think that does a good job of painting what what you and I see as uh, the issue. Uh, and it's not just uh, Delaware doesn't have just uh, sophisticated people forming these companies. They like like pretty much every other state also has a bunch of people who who get into LLCs because that's what they've heard is a thing to do if you want to start a business and you want some cheap uh, relatively comprehensive limited liability protection. So the the reason why uh, I think you see a, a problem or a, a disconnect between the Delaware cases and and your practice and the reason why I see a problem with the way that state law is working in many states is because you have this LLC form and it appeals to two very different types of people. So there are those who like the mom and pop companies, they just want limited liability protection and they don't particularly care or know legal rights they have in the operating agreement. And then you have people using the exact same organizational form who are extremely sophisticated investors who don't want to be bogged down by something like uh, the duty of loyalty or the duty of care and the potential litigation issues that that can raise. And they want to craft a an operating agreement that gets rid of those protections while making sure they can still manage this business effectively. And so when you have the same form that's designed to accommodate these two very conflicting interests, I think it can be kind of irreconcilable, or or at least it it places a lot of weight on the judiciary to come in and try and differentiate when do we need to step in in the name of equity or, or, or anything else to do something, even though the operating agreement says you can do something else. Like if the agreement waives the right to seek judicial dissolution, should you necessarily follow that when you have some very unsophisticated investor who didn't know what they were getting involved in, all of a sudden held to be a party to this agreement for the rest of their lives? That can seem kind of crazy. But on the other hand, if you want to promote predictability and other factors that that can be important, 
maybe you want to actually enforce those agreements. So that's what the paper is trying to grapple with. It's trying to figure out, can we have this one business entity still satisfy or cater to these two divergent groups? And I think there are ways that you can accomplish that, but it's one of the important contributions is just to point out how difficult it is to satisfy those two things and how uh, with LLCs continuing to grow in popularity, this is just a problem that is growing and and seems to be one that we'll continue to face down the road. In your article, you propose what appears to me anyway as a, uh, as a novel, if not radical, way of differentiating between what we're referring to as the sophisticated investor in the LLC and the unsophisticated investor in the LLC. And we'll come back to that term of sophisticated investor, but what's the, the framework of the proposal that you come up with in your article? The basic goal that I have if, if I were designing LLC law from from the ground up, if you want to have this form that still continues to cater to these two different groups, one of the challenges is to figure out, can we have some differences in the law, maybe make some protections default for sophisticated parties and mandatory for unsophisticated parties? But the challenge with, with any of these approaches is to figure out, is this an LLC that has essentially the, the people who got into it for their contractual freedom purposes, like they, they protect themselves, they individually negotiate this agreement, they have lawyers who are advocating on their behalf. And for those people, you probably want to give them a fair amount of leeway in the terms that their agreements can have, and that will be enforceable. On the other hand, if you have people getting into the LLC simply for the, it's, it's a nice investment, it's an LLC, so you get some limited liability protection, but they don't particularly understand uh, and they didn't hire or weren't expected to hire sophisticated counsel to represent themselves. For those investors, it seems like giving them some of the mandatory protections that you see in corporate law would be a good idea. So you were getting at how do we differentiate between those two groups? And that's certainly a hard a hard thing to do. What I recommend most strongly in the paper is doing something like what federal securities does, federal securities law does with its accredited investor standard and use wealth as a proxy for sophistication or wealth as a proxy for, you know, at least wealthy people have money that they can lose if they get a little over their heads in an investment that maybe they shouldn't have. It's certainly not a perfect proxy for sophistication, but it's one way to take the pool of LLC investors and try and divide it into the two groups one group that is capable or expected to to protect themselves and for that group you give them a fair amount of contractual flexibility like the Delaware approach does today. And then the other group, which is the group of passive investors who aren't expected to necessarily know the legal consequences of what they're getting involved in, you give them some of the more mandatory protections like what corporate law features. And in that way, you can still have this one legal entity catering to these two different interests like it's currently trying to do. Peter, you and I have both been using this term, the sophisticated investor. And if I understand what you're proposing, the sophisticated investor who meets some sort of wealth criterion is in some sense permitted, I'm not sure that's the right word, to participate as an investor in an LLC that is subject to a set of rules that allows the managers or designers of the LLC to vary default rules consistent with freedom of contract. In other words, not subject necessarily to any mandatory rules. And then on the other side of the divide, you have what we'll call the unsophisticated investor who doesn't meet the wealth criterion. That person, you're going to tell me, 
is or is not allowed to invest in the former LLC I just described, but is allowed to invest in a separate set of LLCs that are going to be subjected to some greater number of mandatory rules? I think that, that that's getting the, the point across pretty well. The mechanics of it might be a little bit different. And it sounds a little bit like a foreign concept when you first start to think about it. So you can think of LLCs that have complete flexibility to set their own governance terms. They're a relatively risky investment compared to an LLC where you get the the quintessential protections you see from corporate law, like mandatory fiduciary duties or right to seek judicial dissolution in certain circumstances. And so if just like under federal securities law, where you have accredited investors who are deemed able to get involved in investments that are relatively riskier, unregistered securities offerings, the same idea would come over to LLC space where the analog of an accredited securities law investor would be able to get involved in some of the uh, relatively risky LLC investments. The way that I would see it, it working, at least most similar to describe it in a way that's similar to, I imagine, most of the readers or listeners out there. You can have a corporation that elects a certain type of status, like you can decide to be an S corporation if you want that favorable sort of tax treatment. So what I envision here is you have your basic sort of LLC. And that's the one that anyone can get uh, involved with if they want. That's the one that has mandatory protections, uh, the particular ones which we can quibble about later on. But then if you have investors who are exclusively ones that will deem sophisticated in whatever way you want to measure sophistication, either by wealth or or something else. If you have that group of investors and you can elect a, a certain status and that status will allow you to waive certain corporate law type protections that would otherwise be mandatory for the other type of LLC. So you can imagine there's your default LLC. And then if you have the certain pool of investors who are all deemed capable of protecting themselves. You can elect into the heightened riskier status that allows you to do stuff like you see LLCs doing today, waiving the duty of care, waiving the duty of loyalty, uh, and all the other familiar protections that you might want less sophisticated parties to be entitled to. What's the downside of subjecting all LLCs to mandatory rules of the sort, some of which you've just started to mention, the right to seek judicial dissolution, the imposition of fiduciary duty on managers, participation in you know, major decisions such as merger, and there may be some others we could mention. But why not subject all LLCs to those mandatory rules, which sort of sounds more like the corporate form, I know, but what's the what's the real downside? What are the costs of doing that? Right. So that's an important point. If if there aren't costs from these mandatory protections of corporate law, then you're exactly right. You would want to impose those protections uh, on all parties, essentially regardless of the type of organizational form they they choose. Uh, so there are downsides of these mandatory protections, and those downsides, they don't happen in every circumstance. And a lot of the time, the reason why these protections are mandatory is because on balance, they may be helpful. But you can imagine, again, if, if we look at the space of highly sophisticated parties who maybe have many millions of dollars at stake and who have many ongoing business relationships with one another, they may be better capable of aligning their financial interests through non-legal means and something like the duty of loyalty, which is not all that well-defined. There's a lot of gray area over whether certain conduct 
does or doesn't satisfy manager's duty of loyalty or duty of care. If you get rid of that protection, then if you're able to protect yourself through these other ways, through like alignment of financial interests, through repeated relationships with one another, then you get rid of that uncertainty over whether certain conduct does or doesn't violate something like the duty of loyalty. And by extension, you get rid of that litigation risk that frees managers up to do what they want to do, which is to run the business. So for the same reason that you see those, the, the section 102B7 waiver in Delaware becoming so popular, allowing the waiver of financial liability for violating the duty of care, that was so popular because of the cost that the fiduciary duty of care imposes on managers, primarily through the litigation risk. So LLCs just kind of take that to the next level. They say that, well, maybe it's not just the duty of care that imposes costs on managers. It could also be the duty of loyalty through its litigation uncertainty or through the right to seek judicial dissolution, which may trigger certain bond covenants and impose some financial costs on parties when that's exercised. If the people can protect themselves without those legal protections getting in the way, then maybe it could be more efficient to have an organizational form that allows parties to waive those traditional protections. What's the cost uh, if we flip it now when we talk about a system of rules that relies maybe not a hundred percent, but mostly on default rules that can be varied, of course. What's the cost societal or otherwise of doing that? Uh, right. So that's, that, that, that's great to look at it from the other perspective too, and just say, taking this argument to the next level, maybe nothing should be uh, mandatory. And in, in many ways, that's that's kind of the approach that Delaware law has been taking with LLCs. And I think you've seen a lot of those costs when, uh, on, in your practice, Peter, when you've been looking at some of these relationships gone wrong, where the informal mechanisms that carry these companies along for years or however long they happen to be able to do business, when those informal means break down and you have to rely on the legal protections that you have, if you're like a, a mom and pop family business and all of a sudden there is some sort of argument in the family, everything goes down the toilet. Uh, and all of a sudden, this company, you look at your operating agreement and you see there's no fiduciary duties, there's no right to seek judicial dissolution. At that point, you have parties who hate each other, who are still locked up in this investment and don't really have a way to get out of it or a way to make sure that managers continue to pursue the company's best interest rather than their own. So by, by having this money locked up, investments locked up, people's future locked up in inefficient organizations, that's a significant downside from having uh, protections be only a default. And it's most likely to happen in the circumstances where investors don't know what they're getting involved into in the first place. Like you described at the start, maybe they're passive investors. They don't have a lot of money at stake. It's not enough to go hire a lawyer to represent themselves. And so they don't actually appreciate what they're getting involved in until the agreement breaks down and they're stuck in this circumstance where they see maybe their life savings is kind of tied up in this company that they now have no way of getting out of. And that can be a significant cost, not just for those individuals, but also for efficient governing of, of companies and making sure that money is put to its most valued uses. So there's some economic uh, economy-wide impacts as well, in addition to, of course, the, the very real impacts on these uh, on the individuals who have to go litigate these cases. Yeah, well, I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people listening to this w would have not a lot of sympathy for investors or whatever you want to call them who go into business not paying 
what you and I might say is adequate attention to the terms that they're binding themselves to. And, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, you made your bed, now lie in it. And That's right. you know, no one is, you know, we're not going to, you're asking us or you're coming to court, for instance, and you're asking uh, the judge to you know, save yourself from yourself. Right. And, and I think there is some, you know, merit to that position. You're making the point that offering the kinds of protections that you're talking about for the unsophisticated investor is designed not, it's, it's not simply designed to save someone from their self. It's designed sort of at a macro level, and I may be misusing that term, for the, for the overall benefit of what, our economy, or you can probably articulate that better than I can, Peter, having studied it. But there is some societal benefit to protecting, as I put it, people from themselves. Sure. Yeah. You, you want to make sure that that money is being put into its most valued use. And if you have people investing with a series of incorrect assumptions, which if they just hired a lawyer at the start, that would, could have been corrected for them. I, I totally get the argument that these problems were entirely preventable if you just had had the foresight to go out and and get some representation. So, and certainly when I went into this, this project looking at LLCs in the first place, I was very strongly in that perspective. But you keep seeing cases over and over again, and it doesn't matter how many times the judiciary says we're going to enforce this agreement as it's written, and essentially you you made this bed now you have to sleep in it. You still see people investors getting involved, seemingly like for the first time realizing oh these legal terms matter. That's a surprise to me. Now I better go see how I can fix things down the road. So you're always going to be left with this problem of, of even even if you, you say strict adherence to the contract is what we're going to go with. You're left with the circumstance of, well, what do we do with these people who are never going to read one of these agreements and are never going to hire a lawyer to represent themselves? And one response is just you do nothing about them and, and they just have to bear the consequences of what they got involved with. But there are the uh, the, the economic downsides, not just for them, but also, as, as you pointed out, for the economy as a whole, that may make us want to either for economic reasons or different conceptions of fairness or equity may want you to still step in even in those circumstances where you are fixing a problem for them that they could have fixed themselves uh, if they had just gone out and done what people tell them to do, which is to get some representation. We've sort of talked about the tough luck approach, which I, I gather from listening to you doesn't strike the appropriate balance between what I'll call these two worlds. And we've also talked about the, the pluses and minuses of m mandatory minimum you know, rights, which also I sure. gather in your view doesn't strike the right balance. There's a third approach that you mention in your article, and, and, and it really depends on resort to the courts, judicial remedies to rectify whatever the problem is in, 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 in each particular instance. What's wrong with relying on the courts to make things right? Yeah, that, that's that's a great point and one that this is essentially how our, our system is is functioning now in a state like Delaware. There, there are some things about it that I think are good. It would it could allow you to effectively leave the law fairly unchanged, at least as it's written, and rely on the judges to intervene when they think that it's appropriate. And, and that requires you to assume that judges are able to figure out when they think uh, intervention is a good idea. And some people might think that judges are good at that. And some people may have uh, questions about how well judges target when and when when they should and should not intervene. 
so that's one assumption. But probably a, a bigger point is that you have a lot of people who never end up even getting into court. So they never get to the point where a judge is going to say in the name of equity or, or anything else, we think we should disregard what the agreement says. So if you never get that judge to come along and, and the law is not clear on when judges will intervene, then you're leaving a whole class of people who may benefit from some sort of mandatory protection. You're leaving them unprotected if, if you're relying on them to go talk to a judge and they never they just never decide to do that. That's, I think, one of the problems with the third approach. But let me also circle back to uh, approaches one and two. I think that the mandatory approach for everyone could be appropriate in some circumstances. And it's really going to this is this is where you can take advantage of the fact that different states have different types of LLCs that form in them. So you have in a state like Delaware, they certainly gained a large portion of the what we'll call the relatively sophisticated group of investors decide to form LLCs under Delaware law. New York certainly has a bunch of those too, but probably a lower proportion relative to their overall number of LLCs in Delaware. But you could imagine uh, there are, or you don't even need to imagine, you can just look, there are many states in the country that probably have primarily the mom and pop type of, of LLC. And if you're a sophisticated party, you're going to form somewhere outside of your home state. So we could imagine that that's going to be, I, I'm in Florida now, so we maybe we'll assume Florida is one of those states. If Florida is one of those states where it's essentially only relatively unsophisticated parties that are getting involved, for them, mandatory protections for everyone may be a good idea because their investor base is different from something like a Delaware LLC or a New York LLC. And if you're in a state that is almost exclusively sophisticated investors, which Delaware maybe used to be, but has moved away from as LLCs have become more popular. But if you're in a state that has only sophisticated investors and maybe default rules for everybody makes sense because you have very few unsophisticated investors getting involved in that state. So very few people who need protection. It's really the states like New York or like Delaware now that have both groups forming LLCs under that state law. Those are the states that really have these difficulties of figuring out how do we deal with these two different types of, of needs that investors have. What you're describing sounds very much like something that would have to be dealt with at the policy level by the legislatures in these states. It's, it's a little difficult for me to imagine the forces that would be brought to bear on that, the interest groups that would be interested in that type of legislative change. I mean, I, we all know that Delaware it's, it's like a machine, the way they regularly uh, update their LLC and, and corporate statutes, and they have very well-defined groups that participate in that process on a regular basis. I certainly don't see anything like that uh, in New York. I really can't speak to other states. Everything we're talking about, everything you're addressing in your article would have to be done, would it not, at the legislative level? Uh, I see that certainly could be the the simplest way to get this done. So we talked about the specific way that I would try to, to implement this system, which would rest very heavily on some sort of legislative effort. But there are probably some less ambitious ways to try and achieve a similar result. And again, the basic result that, that I'm trying to get at here is to separate the pool of LLCs and LLC investors into two groups, one that needs protection and, and one that doesn't. And then you tailor the mandatory and default protections uh, appropriately. So you'll see there's some Delaware decisions where in the actual writing, the, the chancellors or vice chancellors will say, we're not sure if parties should actually be allowed to waive the right to seek judicial dissolution, but we'll leave that for an issue for uh, another day. And you can see that maybe as a step of the judiciary trying to lead, lead down the path of saying, well, hey, maybe these protections in Delaware, they're going 
going to be mandatory, even though the law, uh, the statute doesn't say that it will. So you could have the judiciary taking some steps like that. I think that there are certainly limits on, on what they're able to do. But at the same time, when they're writing those sorts of opinions, it does place some pressure on, like in Delaware, it'll place pressure on the interest groups to try to get the law clarified, to take some of that pressure away, because there's always a worry that maybe the judiciary will go overboard in a way that interest groups don't particularly like. So let's take that pressure off reform, do it ourselves in a way that makes sure we can still at least salvage the utmost in LLC flexibility for a group of investors. And then we're uh, sure of the fact that we're not going to go overboard here, that maybe we're not going to pass mandatory protections for everyone, which a lot of people uh, in the very sophisticated group would think is a, is a terrible idea, not something they ever want to face. So it's not just that we're giving parties the right to get rid of protections that, that they don't want to have. It's unless you know that judicial dissolution is a default right, then when you read that operating agreement, if I'm a potential investor, I don't see anything about judicial dissolution there. All I see is this one sentence that says, except as otherwise uh, required by law, we're going to be governed by this agreement. Nothing in the agreement says judicial dissolution. So I have no reason to think that it is uh, or isn't even there. So that's, uh, I think, a great example of how you as an investor, even if if, if if you have a decent sense of what you're doing, you can get involved in something that is a bit over your head. As I mentioned in the intro, part two of the interview will be available in the next episode of this podcast in two or three weeks. I hope you'll listen to that episode as well. In the meantime, it will be well worth your time to read for yourself Peter's article in the UC Davis Law Review. It's available at ssrn.com, and I'll also include a link in the episode notes. I'll also include a link on my New York Business Divorce blog. Until next time, this is Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening.